Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the men and women who serve and protect our country. May they know the blessing of serving well and honorably. We pray that you would protect their safety, whether they are at home or abroad, whether they're participating in drills or are deployed. We pray that you would protect them from discouragement, keep them morally strong, allow them to be gracious and kind even in the use of great strength. Lord, we pray that you would be with the families of those who have sent husbands and wives and parents and children to serve who give of their loved ones so that our loved ones may live free. Lord, we thank you for the many military chaplains of our denomination serving in every branch of the armed forces. May they too serve with honor and bring the hope of the gospel to those who live in the midst of stressful situations. Lord, now we thank you for the opportunity to study the Bible. Pray that as we open it, you would use it to bless us Help us, Lord, during this season of Advent to understand what it means to wait upon you, to see how you portray the coming of Jesus even throughout all of history, how the prophets foretold this coming of the infant of wonder. Lord, allow us to see that clearly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 42, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9. Now, if you don't have a a Bible with you, then there are some that are the blue Bibles in the chair racks. You're invited and welcome to take that and turn to Isaiah 42. If you're using those Bibles in the chair racks, then Isaiah 42 is on page 765. Isaiah is the first of what's referred to as the major prophets, uh, not because Isaiah and Jeremiah, that they, not because they were more important prophets, but because the books are longer, so they're, they're the major prophets. And so if you find Psalms in the middle of your Bible and move to the right, move forward, you'll eventually come upon a very large book that is the book of Isaiah. Now, we're going to be spending some time over the next few weeks looking at some passages in Isaiah. So let me just introduce quickly who this guy was. Isaiah was a prophet who lived from about 740 to about 680 BC. So this was during the final days of the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel, after the reign of King Solomon, split into two kingdoms, one in the north and one in the south. The northern kingdom was referred to as Israel, the southern kingdom referred to as Judah. Now this northern kingdom fell to the Assyrian Empire first, and the southern kingdom continued to to, to, to go on for a number of years after that. Now, Isaiah was ministering during the final days of the northern kingdom of Israel, which was about to fall to the expanding Assyrian Empire. And what Isaiah was doing was sounding a warning to the southern kingdom, to Judah, the land that included the city of Jerusalem. He was warning Judah that its fate would be similar if it persisted in its rebellion against God. Now, Isaiah did not live to see the ultimate conquest of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., but he saw it coming. He could see that it was coming. And the book of comfort, which is the second section of Isaiah that starts with chapter 40, it's often referred to as the book of comfort because the prophet is addressing a future community of God's people who will be in exile. He's addressing the people of Judah of the future who will be in exile, and he's offering them comfort. 
first part of Isaiah is primarily warning. Isaiah 40 and onward is the book of comfort. Now, that's where we find ourselves when we come to Isaiah 42. I'll say a little bit more in a minute, but that's the general context of where we are in the midst of that book of comfort to the people who will be in exile. So let me invite you, if you're able to stand as I read this passage, and if then you would say, as a matter of thanksgiving, when I finish, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. So Isaiah 42, starting at verse 1, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, I introduced Isaiah, but let me tell you a little bit more about why we're studying this, because after all, it's Christmas time, so shouldn't shouldn't we be starting to talk about angels and shepherds and babies and stuff like that? Well, on Sunday mornings during December this year, what we're going to do is we're going to study four passages that lead us to that. Four passages from this section of Isaiah, and we're going to approach the coming of Christmas using these texts that are commonly referred to as the servant songs of Isaiah. Now, they're songs in the way that they're written, and they're set off from the rest of the prophecy because, as one of the commentators puts it, when you read these songs, there's an atmospheric change to the language. It just feels like you're breathing different air when you read these songs. They fit the context, but you know you're reading them because the air just feels different as you breathe in these words. The language becomes more exalted, more sweeping, and they all talk about, all of these servant songs, they all talk about this figure, the servant. And here's where we get Christmassy, because the servant who Isaiah talked about is someone who will claim to be Israel's Messiah, their rescuer. And it's that Messiah who history later identifies as Jesus, Jesus the servant. In fact, Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing a song about Jesus, and this is how he describes Christmas in a sense. He says, Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, Jesus, even though he was in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. You hear that? That's Christmas right there. Jesus, being equal with God, became human. And in doing what? And in doing so, he did what? He took the nature of a servant. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to have a Messiah who is born to be a servant? Now, I think that really is my 
is my primary job this morning, to start that conversation over the next four weeks about what that means. And Isaiah 42, 1-9 is the place to start, because this is the first of the servant songs of Isaiah. Now, from a literary standpoint, if you saw as we read it, it divides up into two main sections. You have verses 1-4, to and that's where you have the presentation, the introduction of this servant. Behold, right? Some translators say, here is my servant. Behold my servant, right? Then, in verses 5 to 9, God shifts his attention. It's as if he's talking to the people at first, behold my servant, and then he shifts his attention in verse 5 to speak directly to the servant. It's like a commissioning, kind of, an anointing. Now, so within that, within those two main sections, then I think there's two basic ideas, two main ideas that I think are worth thinking about. Right? Thinking about as we, as we introduce this servant of the Lord. You have the identity of the servant. That's in the first four verses. And then you have the mission of the servant. That's in the remainder of the verses up through verse 9. First identity and then mission. There's two points. Not three. Hope you don't feel cheated. Just two. Right? First, the first one. Identity of the servant. Go back to verse 1. Because like I said, here you have this big reveal. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Now let's think about this term servant for a second. There is a generic use of the term servant of God that's used throughout the Bible for basically anyone who does God's work, right? The word was used in places to refer to the prophets, to refer to the kings in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, right? This is the sense of that word servant that refers to basically anyone who is a follower of God. We are his servants, but that's not the primary sense in which the word servant is used here. And it's not just because we, you know, what, because what we read in the New Testament, right? The ancient Hebrew scholars, the ancient Hebrew and Jewish teachers specifically highlighted the servant language here as messianic, right? This isn't just like a Christian thing that started like in the first century, viewing this passage as, as being more than just the generic servant. No, this is the way the Jewish teachers of the years thought of this. In fact, two very prominent targums in use around the time that Jesus lived, interpreted Isaiah 42 this way. Now, targum was a copy of the Jewish scriptures with significant commentary that was used for common teaching. It was like a study Bible, kind of. Had a lot of commentary that was associated with the, with, with the Hebrew scriptures. And these two targums that were in use in the first century were written in Aramaic because that's what most people in that part of the world commonly spoke instead of Hebrew. And they both, in the commentary sections of these, of these, these, these study Bibles, refer to the servant as the Messiah. They, they specifically call this out as messianic language. Now, that's important to understand. That the servant of Isaiah 42, according to the common Jewish teaching of the time, would have been understood to be the Messiah. Because when Jesus comes onto the scene and he begins his ministry and he has his own kind of big reveal moment, similar presentation, you can see the parallels. You can draw the connecting lines. If you have your Bible, let's look at it. Go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 and start at verse 16. Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the very first book in the, in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. This is Jesus being baptized, and it says in verse 16, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
Now you read that, and immediately you should see two shadows of Isaiah 42 that all the commentators usually point out. Your finger in Isaiah 42? Go back and forth. You see what you see? First, you see the parallel of the fatherly approval that's on display in Matthew. Behold my servant. That's what it says in Isaiah 40. Behold the servant in whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. You see, very similar language to what was said of Jesus in Matthew. The other thing you see is the sort of the, the placing of the Holy Spirit upon the anointed one. This is the, this is the anointing that authenticates the Messiah, right? That says, okay, how are you going to know that this is my chosen one, that this is, how are you going to know? The Holy Spirit is going to come and anoint him, is going to rest on him. Following the baptism by John, the Spirit of God comes on Jesus and comes to rest on him. You see the parallel in Isaiah 42. I have put my Spirit upon him. So there shouldn't be any misunderstanding, either from a New Testament standpoint or from a first century Jewish teaching standpoint, that what God is saying here is that this is the Messiah. And to the average person in the first century, when they heard Jesus come on the scene and they saw him being baptized, they would have heard the the echo of Isaiah 42. So this servant of which Isaiah speaks is the promised promised Messiah. That's his identity in the narrowest sense, right? Okay, you know, who is, who's the servant? What's his identity? Well, he's the Messiah. Now, but what do we learn about him? And let's fill out the definition of, of this servant a little bit more. Well, he clearly, he clearly has some sort of broad authority and power because it says he's going to bring justice to the nations of the earth. We'll come back to that in a second, but that, that's the kind of standard kingly stuff that you would expect from a powerful ruler. Right? I'm going to bring justice. I'm going to exert my power. Right? That's, the kind of, that's standard kingly stuff. Now, what's unique, and what you wouldn't maybe have as your stereotype of a great and powerful leader, is verse 2. It says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Now, you scratch your head a little bit there because this is not how you would typically think of a great and powerful ancient leader, particularly in the ancient world. But even today, we don't think of our great and powerful leaders like that. A few years ago, I read, a, um, I read a book review in the Wall Street Journal. They do book reviews on the, in the weekend edition. And this was, the, this was a book review um, of a book called The Fleet at Flood Tide. And it's about the rapid construction and the rapid rise of the global supremacy of the United States Navy during World War II. And at the head of that massive achievement was Ernest J. King. Admiral King was the commander-in-chief of the U.S. fleet and chief of naval operations during World War II, and his achievements were absolutely remarkable. His leadership, undeniable. He was, in a sense, sort of a naval messiah. He led and he rescued the U.S. Navy, which became absolutely critical to the U.S. war effort, particularly in the Pacific, where a large portion of the fleet was destroyed at Pearl Harbor. But he fell in, Admiral King, this is what I found interesting, he fell into the classic expectation of what you'd, you would be looking for from an authoritative savior kind of leader. Change needs to happen, needs to happen now, and I'm in charge. Right? His first, his, his autobiography that he wrote about himself was entitled Fleet Admiral King, which of course is just his name. I mean, that's his name, Admiral King, but you kind of get the sense that he kind of enjoyed the double meaning of the name. That he kind of liked that it was not just his name, but sort of his title as well. The reviewer that I was reading described Admiral King as absolutely terrifying to those around him. One of his daughters was actually quoted as saying, he was the most even-tempered man in all of the Navy. 
he was always angry. <laughs> Completely even at all times. He was just always in a rage. Right? Now that's fleet Admiral King. But what I want you to see is when we come to Isaiah 42, that's not this king. This king is different. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. You know, that, of course, is one of the core themes of Christmas. You know that line from, um, from Away in a Manger, the one that goes, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I don't think that's actually true, probably. I mean, I get what the, what the carol writer is trying to say, that Jesus was sinless, that he had a sinless temperament. But there are, I mean, there's other good reasons why a baby might cry, not besides rebellious anger, right? Because his baby's hungry, he's tired, right? Those are just marks of humanity. They're not necessarily marks of, of sin. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, the carol writer is on to something. We'll never know for sure because we're not exactly who wrote the carol, sure who wrote the carol. But maybe, maybe in this song, the baby isn't crying because this baby is the one who will not cry aloud because he's the baby's servant which of course wouldn't mean that he would never cry. It would just mean that he would be different, that he would be distinct, which of, just, of course comes back to the larger point of his identity, and that's really what we know here. The servant is the Messiah, anointed with the power of God and validated by the Spirit of God. And this servant displays his unique, displays this in, in this unique combination of kingly strength and servant humility. That's the identity of the servant. That's the first point. Now the second point, the mission of the servant. If that's who he is, if he is, if he is the Messiah, the one with the power of God validated by the Spirit of God that displays that power through kingly strength and, and servant humility, then what's his mission? What's he here to do? Well, we see, he, he, first we see he's going to bring justice. Go back to the middle of verse 1. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Then go to the middle of verse 3 and into verse 4. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Three times. Three times he uses that word, justice. It's the, it's the Hebrew word mizpot. Now we need to understand that word because because mizpot means justice, but there's different senses in which justice can be understood. And and mizpah can mean other, I uh, mean either of those, uh, of, those, of those meanings, right? You, one of the commentators will say, when we hear the word justice, we often think of retributive justice, punishment, atonement for wrong, right? Judicial equity. The criminal, in this sense, receives that kind of justice. But that's not the primary sense of the word justice here. Here, the word justice is in its broader sense. The, the Old Testament scholar John Oswald puts it like this, mizpah connotes much more than just judicial equity. It's not less than that, right? I mean, criminals will get their due and all, right? But it's not less than that. But it is much more than judicial equity, he says. In its broader sense, it involves societal order in which the concerns of all are addressed. Divine mizpot that the servant will establish is nothing less than the salvation of God defined in its broader sense, broadest sense. This is the life-giving order which exists when the creation is functioning in accordance with the design of the Lord. Let me read that last part again. This is what this broader sense of justice is. The life-giving order which exists when the creation is functioning in accordance with the design 
of the Lord. In other words, the servant will bring about a state of harmony with God, not less than individual forgiveness, but even more than, even more than that as it expands to include the collective rightness of all things. And you can see how far this justice is going to go. How far does this rightness go, this, this imposition, this, this establishment of perfect harmony and rightness? How far is it going to go? Is it just going to be limited? No. Verse 1, it says he's going to bring it to the nations. Verse 4, it's going to be a justice in the earth so that the, the coastlands, which is just an image for the farthest reaches possible, put their hope in his law. The coastlands put their trust in the law of God and his teaching. And then in verse 6, he's going to be a light to the Gentiles, specifically calling out those who are not ethnically Jewish. And this, this, this mizpah, this justice that restores rightness, is not only going to reach far and wide, it's going to absolutely transform those that it reaches. So it's not just going to go wide and thin, it's going to go wide and deep. It's going to be transformative. Look at verse 7. It's going to open the eyes that are blind. It's going to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. You remember Luke 4, Luke chapter 4, when Jesus begins his ministry. When Jesus first begins his ministry, he goes into a synagogue in Nazareth, and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. This is what he reads, part of what he reads. He he reads, "He he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. Now he's quoting, he's reading there from Isaiah 61, but it's the same stuff that Isaiah is saying the servant will do here in Isaiah 42. And Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, reads that. He closes up the scroll, and he says to everyone who's there, I'm paraphrasing, in case you were wondering who that's talking about, it's me. It's me. He claims for himself the mission of the Isaiah servant. And of course, the mission of Jesus did concern itself with the the care of the physically poor and the blind and the captives. But the ultimate, the ultimate object of this image here for Israel in Isaiah 42 is not freedom from slavery in Babylon. Right? They, would have, they would have wanted a certain amount of comfort in that area, but that's not, it's not primarily the physical bondage that Isaiah is talking about here. It's the release from the darkness and the bondage of their sin. That was Jesus' mission that he claimed And that's what Isaiah was pointing to as the ultimate mission of the servant. Now, how does a servant carry out the mission? Well, first of all, we have to go back to verse 3, and we have to notice something very important. He carries out the mission with great gentleness and great compassion. Verse 3 uses this absolutely beautiful image, very poetic. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now, a bruised reed is a a stalk of grain that has been broken, right, probably by the wind or, or something. It's still attached to the base, but it's, it's bent to the point where it's probably not going to grow anymore. And it's pretty serious. The word bruise here is not, it's not like some light little injury, right? We tend to use the word bruise sometimes like that. Kids, sometimes you'll, you'll get hurt or whatever, and your parents will look at it and say like, oh, it's just a bruise, right? That's not what this word really means here, right? This, this Hebrew, this, this is a serious injury. This is broken, smashed, crushed. It's pretty serious, And God is saying that when his servant comes to the bruised reed, he's going to heal it. He's not going to break it off. He's not just going to put it out of its misery. He's going to heal it. He's going to restore it. It's the same thing that's implied by this image of a smoldering wick. It's 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 a candle. 
Except it's a candle that's not burning brightly. It's a candle that's flickering, that it's a, it's about to, that's about to go out, that's gasping for breath. And God is saying that he's not going to blow it out. He's going to fan that flame. He's going to bring it back. He is beautifully gentle, and he carries out his mission with great care and great compassion. Now, flowing from that, how does he carry out his mission? He carries it out with sacrifice. Now, we don't see it as clearly here as we will in coming weeks in, a, in, in the rest of the servant's songs, but there are hints of it here. When God says in verse 4 that the servant will not grow faint or be discouraged in his mission, God's hinting at the fact that the mission's not going to be easy. He says he's not going to be discouraged, right? He's, he's, he's hinting this is not going to be an easy mission that the servant has here. It's going to involve some, some, some suffering to be experienced by the servant. He's going to win. He's not going to falter. He's not going to fail, but it's going to cost him something. And, and go back to that comment that I made a couple of minutes ago about the servant not shouting, not crying, not raising his voice. Right? Even in that, there is a hint of resolute suffering. Because, of course, when Jesus went to the cross, I mean, he did speak and he did cry out. Remember, it says at one point he cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he cried out, he did speak. But the point is, he did not protest. He went there willingly. When he walks through the streets on his way to be executed outside of the city gates, he didn't cry out. He didn't try to, to rally the crowd to his side. He didn't try to elicit sympathy. Why not? Because the cross was part of his mission. The servant's mission is accomplished by the servant suffering on behalf of those he's serving. Or put it another way, the servant experiences the punishment so that we can be freed from captivity. That's his mission. He takes the punitive justice of God so that we can get the mizpot, the eternal, all things being made right. So that's the identity of the servant. And that's the mission of the servant. And all this, I think, leads us to just a couple of observations before we finish. If the servant is the humble but strong Messiah, and if his mission is to restore a state of perfect justice by subjecting himself to that justice so that we who are imprisoned can be freed, then a couple of things. First observation, if that's true, if that's who this servant is and that's what he did, then you must, you have to, if that's how you understand the servant, you have to have an amazing amount of respect for the servant. Once you learn who he really is and what his mission really is, and, and once that begins to really sink down deep, you can't help but respond in praise and admiration. Let me tell you another story. Forgive it also having a reference to the Second World War, but it's just where it lands. Uh, James Moshgat was a cadet at the United States Air Force Academy in 1976. Colorado Springs, Colorado, right? That's where the Air Force Academy is. He was a cadet there in 1976. And while he was there, he was reading a book about the Allied ground campaign in, in Italy during the Second World War. And he came upon, as he was reading this book, an account of a particularly fierce battle for a hill in September of 1943. And there in this story, in the account of this battle, was the story of a 25-year-old private named William Crawford, who was the platoon's, his platoon's scout. And twice, this private Crawford moved forward through continuous enemy fire to destroy machine gun nests that were threatening his platoon. And in this account that 
this Air Force Academy cadet was reading in 1976, there was a citation written in there honoring Private Crawford, a citation that came from the president. And this is what it said. It honored Private Crawford, who in the face of intense and overwhelming hostile fire with no regard for personal safety, on his own initiative, single-handedly attacked fortified enemy positions, displaying conspicuous gallantry at risk of life above and beyond the call of duty. Now, that's interesting, very heroic. You can kind of find the theme of sacrifice in that. But what shocked this cadet, James Moshgat, as he was reading this in 1976 at the Air Force Academy, was the realization and the connection that the private Crawford that he was reading about was the same person that he had only known as Mr. Crawford, the quiet gray-haired janitor for his squadron's dormitory at the Air Force Academy. No one knew. But Mr. Crawford was a recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest military award, uh, award for valor given by the president on behalf of the Congress. It's, a, it's, it's the only medal that when it's worn brings, a, brings an initiation, a, a salute initiated by a superior officer. Almost always when a, a, a lower rank and a higher rank comes together, it's the lower rank that's required to salute the, the higher rank, and then the higher rank returns the salute. This is the only award, the only medal that when worn by someone of lower rank elicits the salute first from the superior officer. You get priority seating if you're a Congressional Medal of Honor winner on all military flights. It's a very elite club. It essentially makes you military royalty. This was the guy that Jim Moshgat and his fellow classmates had largely ignored because he swept the floors. And when Moshgat and the other cadets confronted Mr. Crawford about the article, he just shrugged. He yeah, asked me. And they said, why did you ever tell us about this? And he told them, he said, look, guys, that was one day in my life a long time ago. It happened a long time ago. In other words, thanks, guys, but like, don't make a big deal of it. You just, just get to class, just move on. But see, here's the thing. Once they knew this, once they understood that this is who this guy was and this is what this guy had done, they can't just move on, just can't treat him this, the same way. And they didn't. Now everyone greeted Mr. Crawford now, right? They took extra care to pick up, for them, pick up after themselves around the, the dormitory. They talked to him, talk him, they sought his advice, they invited him to, to formal functions for the, the squadron. Now, of course, they realized that they should have done this, they'd done any of these things for the janitor just as a matter of respect. But what caused the respect to just soar? It was the fact that this was royalty now in their midst. And, and, and he wasn't on parade. He was cleaning their, their bathrooms. He was sweeping their floors. He was taking out their trash. Now, do you see, that, you see the parallel? God deserves your respect no matter what. Right? Just simply by the nature of him being God. He deserves it. It is, it is our duty to respect him, to treat him honorably. But what happens when you realize that the servant was the one who came to clean up your mess? At that point, the duty of respect is transformed to amazement. Now think about that. Is that you this Christmas season? Do you need to look a little bit longer into the manger and think about what that's saying? Jesus wasn't just born into a barn. He came to clean it. That's the first observation. If this is the identity of the servant, then it should lead us to an unconditional admiration and surrender to the servant. 
Now, second observation. If Jesus is the ultimate servant, then you have all the motivation, all the power that you need to be a servant to. Uh, James Moshgat, then becoming a colonel, wrote later, thinking of the example of Mr. Crawford, he said, if Bill Crawford said, as I think back on this in my time in the academy, if Bill Crawford, a Medal of Honor recipient, could clean latrines and smile, is there any job that is beneath my dignity? Now, raise that up a notch and replace Bill Crawford Crawford with Jesus. I mean, raise it up a lot of notches, right? And so, okay, if that's true for this guy, okay, if, is, there any, is there anything that a servant like Jesus then couldn't ask you to do? Anything where you'd have the right to say back to him that this particular task is beneath you? When this is the servant who came not just to be born in a barn, but to clean the barn. Can you look at that servant in any way and say, "Ah, I don't know, Jesus, that kind of seems a little below my pay grade. There isn't. There isn't a single thing. And so what that means is that because Jesus is the servant, you're then free to serve in whatever role God calls you to serve, to do it with joy, to do it without resentment, to do it without the need to prove yourself. From another angle, think of it like this. If If Jesus is this servant, then is there anything that you're going through right now about which you can rightly say, Jesus, you just wouldn't understand? Really? Try him. Feeling lonely, abandoned, or rejected? He knows. He's that kind of servant. Your friends who misunderstand you, enemies who are out to get you, he knows. He's that kind of servant. Hurting physically? Gets that. Feeling like a bruised bruised reed or a smoldering wick? Is your flame about to go out? He will not break you. He will not blow you out. And when we remember those things, we increasingly see the identity of the servant and we take hold of that into our own identity. So what we do, what can we do? We serve other people. We do it with that in mind. We, We do so with the hope that God's promises will be fulfilled, that God wins. That's really what it's saying in verses 8 and 9 as it finishes. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You see what God's saying? I am the Lord. Right? We talked, if you were here on Wednesday, we talked a little bit about this. This is the covenant name of God, I am. And it's a reminder because that's where God promised that Israel would be released from slavery, when he went to Moses in the burning bush. And so now God is identifying himself as that same I am and promising to send a servant who will establish lasting freedom. And the implication is you can trust him because God keeps his promises. The same one who said it in the bush is the same one who says it now. That's the contrast that we're intended to see when we see God discrediting the other idols in verses 8 and 9. The other idols can't do that. Anything else you place your faith and your trust in will not do it. They don't deliver on what they promise. But God does, and God will. And that really, at the end of the day, is what this season of waiting upon Christmas is all about. The anticipation of God delivering on His promise. He promised to send a servant who would restore Mizpah, restore justice. He did. And that same servant is coming again, and that's what we're waiting for. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises. Thank you for sending Jesus, our Messiah. Jesus, thank you for coming and living among us, for serving us.
not just being born into humble means, but going a step further than that, not just living in humility, but dying in humility so that we might be exalted, so that we might be able to experience an eternity in your presence. Oh God, let that penetrate deep into our heart this Advent season. Help us to anticipate your return, even as we celebrate what you have done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.